Apple presents events at the Apple Store. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, film critic from The Village Voice and owner of Video Free Brooklyn, Aaron Hillis. Thank you, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for coming out here. Nice, nice packed crowd. Uh, before we bring out our special guest this evening, we're actually going to be watching a trailer for the new movie, Zero Theorem. Quinn, how's it hanging? Sorry. We prefer not to be touched. What? You seem tense. There's very little that brings us joy. You're a tough nut to crack. And of course, I don't mean not in the pejorative sense. What seemed to be the problem? We are dying. No, we're not. Yes, we are. Not, not, not. Zero theorem. Oh, very hush hush. I give him two weeks. Zero must equal 100%. The zero theorem is unprovable. 100%. I think I've got a friend who might be able to help. You're a pretty intense guy. No! Locked up all alone. So, tell me. How did it all start? You have any idea what the zero theorem is all about? Everything adds up to nothing. What's the point? Exactly, what's the point of anything? We always wanted to feel different. Unique. You have made a very big mistake. Why would you want to prove that all is for nothing? And we knew quite clearly that we only had to answer yes, and the voice would give us a reason for being. I'm going to go ahead and crib from one of those quotes that is on there. Uh, please give a warm welcome to one of the most original and creative mavericks in cinema today, Terry Gilliam. Maverick. How do, you, how do you feel about that word? So good. Yeah. I mean, to be this old and still be considered a maverick. Uh, the trailer is, is certainly enticing, but I think uh, doesn't, doesn't quite give, uh, give too much away about, about the film. And, uh, and I myself don't want to give away too much. I'm sure you've got the log line down. Uh, Pat, uh, how would you describe what the Zero Theorem is all about? I don't. That's the whole thing. I'm done pitching this movie. <laughs> uh, I get the more I, I watch it, the more I think about it, the, the less easy it is to describe what it really is. Um, but it, it what, what triggered it was my feeling of wanting to consider what it's like to be alone um, in the c connected world that we live in, and it's also a chance to uh, take the piss out of. The connected world and the frenzy of advertising and just the non-stop deluge of information that, that, that we drown in daily um, but in the end to me it was really it's it's a love story and it's a very sad one 
Uh, well, the, the film stars, uh, as, as we see there in the trailer, Christoph Waltz, uh, bald and shaved. Uh, I, I heard that that was actually, you, you forced him to shave the eyebrows? Yeah, it's from all the porno sites, you know, shaved. Everything has to be shaved. Uh, so, sorry. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it actually said in the script, Pat Russian's script, that he was hairless. So, okay, that's what the script says. I follow. I do my job. And, and it's very important to remove an actor's eye, eyebrows to test his actual skills because these are very important tools because you could act like that and, and do a lot with your eyebrows. You remove those and you've taken, off, uh, taken one of the tools out of an actor's uh, toolkit. And so it's a test how brilliant he is. I think what I find extraordinary watching, even just a glimpse of it, is that I don't recognize that character as Christoph. About was it two or three weeks ago, we had dinner in London, and he came there looking you know, full, fully haired, and he doesn't look anything like the character in the film. He's got a face that's the shape of, sort of uh, Fred Astaire. It's angular, a small chin, lots of lovely hair, and this guy, without any makeup, uh, we haven't done anything to him, but he looks like a very, very different human being. Uh, well, as you mentioned, the, the world that this takes place in, uh, very much, you know, even though it is, it is a, a future, near future, who knows how far into the future, uh, it definitely mirrors the, the absurdity and exasperation of, of modern living. And you yourself have described the movie as kind of the, the third leg in a, a Orwellian trilogy that would also include Brazil and 12 Monkeys. Uh, considering this is the, the third film, though, that, uh, that tackles uh, some, some of these, these things that have, have interested you before, I'm curious why now? Why, why is this still uh, on your mind? Well, I mean, the, the, the idea of a trilogy didn't come from me. I mean, it was somebody in the press wrote that, so I've gone along with it because it's, it's okay. But I, mean, I was concerned that this had many qualities that uh, would be uh, used against me. That it was like Brazil, too much like Brazil. So I tried to change the world from the, 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 the more oppressive world that was Brazil into a very happy world. People re refer to it as a dystopia. I think it's a world of happy people. It's color and light out there, and it's fun. The workplace is a joy. Uh, you can bring your rollerblades, your, your scooter to work. Uh, it's only one man who is the gray, miserable uh, person who can't uh, come to terms with this, this very energetic and happy world. Could you talk a little bit about the, the adaptation from screenplay to the film? Because I, I watched this film and, it, and having you know, been very familiar with your work over the years, it, it's absolutely a Terry Gilliam film. But you don't have a screenplay credit. It's almost like somebody set out to make something specifically for you to make. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, the script was um, thrust at me some years ago. And when I read it, I was intrigued by it because it was clearly written by somebody who'd seen every film I had made. Uh, there were little bits and pieces, references to all of them in different ways, some very subtle, others more obvious. And I thought, this is interesting because I've always thought, you know, Fellini ended up making Amarcord, Bergman ended up making Fanning Alexander, which were kind of compendiums of the, their, their preceding work, a way of summing, summing up um, the body of, uh, of work, and I felt, ah, this will be my compendium film, and off we went like that. So it was, it was about six or seven years ago when this began, 
And then uh, it didn't happen. I made uh, Dr. Parnassus, and then I was trying to make Don Quixote again, and that fell on its face once more, and I was desperate to do something. My agent said, oh, what about Zero Theorem? Maybe there's still interest, and there was. Voltage pictures were still keen to make it, and so I just jumped in. It was unlike anything else I've done where I spent you know, a year or two thinking, planning, rewriting, double thinking, making a mess of all the original ideas. This was just, we got a script, let's go to work. And that's exactly what happened. So um, we had, from the moment I cast Christoph, we were greenlit, and that was the middle, of, middle to the end of July, and by the first week of October, we were shooting the film. And that doesn't happen, I mean, to get the money, to design it, to plan everything, and shoot. So it was all done in a rather instinctive way. I gathered a few of old buddies together, and we just worked very fast, and, and for a fraction of the money that was originally planned um, six or seven years earlier. So it was, it was kind of a test of how good everybody was, how, how quickly we could invent and create a world and all the detail in it and, and make the movie. And, so, and the whole thing was shot very quickly as well. So it was only in the editing room that I seriously started looking at what we had done. And, and we did a lot of work in the editing room is all I can say. I mean, it was, it was quite wonderful to play like that because you've got all these pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. And I said, well, let's just cut that one in half, move that over there, and start shifting the thing around and, in a sense, finding the film that we had made without a lot of um, pre-thought. Um, and that's what, what happened and ended up being, in many ways, a different film than uh, what we set out to do and one that I was much happier with, as was Pat Russian, because uh, it chopped off the last three scenes of, the, of what we had shot. It was in the script and he was much relieved because it was a Hollywood ending and nobody believed that, <laughs> except the backers. <laughs> We were also talking backstage about uh, the internet and how it's really fragmented culture. And, uh, you know, that's certainly affected uh, film in a lot of ways, including how people get money for things. When you have ideas that are bigger than life and you know that, you know, you're not going to be able to have the same kind of budget as a, as a, as a superhero movie, how do, you, how do you approach it so that you're not, so that you don't make big ideas like that seem like they're compromised in any way. Oh, well, you, you go to Bucharest, Romania, is what the first thing you do, because it was a fraction of the cost of shooting it in London. And then it really was pushing everybody to the limit. Uh, Carlo Poggioli, who did the costumes, had found this Chinese market outside of Bucharest, where you bought fabric, um, not by the yard, but by weight. Uh, I'll have 10 pounds of that, and I'll have 20 pounds of that fabric. And it was horrible stuff. It was all man-made fibers that looked great. Uh, and Matt Damon, unfortunately, has to wear it. Uh, and it's like some kind of sweatsuit that's designed to you lose 10 pounds in 10 minutes um, wearing this thing. But, and Carlo also started using um, um, shower curtains and plastic tablecloths. And, turning them into clothing. So we ended up with costumes that nobody would have designed unless they had no money <laughs> to do it, and, and which I always find interesting. 
and all, all the way through it, it was like that. We, we found solutions because the money wasn't there and the results are usually, in this instance for me, much more interesting than what I would have done had I had more time and more money. Because I, in a sense, I need to surprise myself all the time by what we're coming up with as solutions. Um, I, I can actually tell you this, when we were talking about doing it uh, six years ago, whenever it was, the budget was $20 million. We made that for $8.5 million. And it looks like it's worth $30 million. But it's about... <laughs> but it's, it's, the point is you're working with really good people and unlike a big film, since I, I've made big films so I know what they're like, it's a small guerrilla group and we all have to rely on each other. There aren't long bureaucratic lines of information getting confused, people in different departments having to co cover their ass by doing three versions of it just in case. Everything had to be immediate and direct and, and it's exhilarating, it's also completely exhausting working like that. By the end, I think the last couple of weeks were eight day weeks and people were falling asleep on the set. Uh, we were shooting a beach scene and uh, Nicola Pecorini, I looked over and he was leaning up against the wall of the tank completely asleep. <laughs> uh, but, but it's exciting working like that. I think, I, in, in fact, I, I, I complain about it, but I find it's more interesting than doing a big budget movie where uh, everybody is so nervous about the responsibility of the money we have uh, to spend. This way, it was like, okay, just fake it with that. We'll do it that way. Do it this way. <laughs> Done. I love how much uh, visual wit you're willing to uh, put into the film just in the margins. You'll have, a, you'll have an elaborate joke that is just a quick throwaway. So if you can give maybe some practical examples about how you work uh, in production design and with, uh, with, with the actual aesthetics to create some of the things, especially as, like you said, uh, you, you didn't have as much money as you once expected. I think, I, I, I don't know, I keep, there's a lot of stuff that I'm just satirizing advertising in, in, in actually, should, should we show that clip? Maybe we should show a Let's clip. Let's do that and then we can talk about it and I can explain how it's done. Is that what the world looks like when you walk outside your, your house? Well, that's what it feels like most of the time, especially coming to New York today. I mean, it never stops. I mean, and the worst thing about New York is the car, which the car, of course, is not used to go anywhere. We're stuck in a traffic jam. But on the radio, it's like, hey, tomorrow. It's incredible energy. If you could travel on the voices on the radio, you could really get around town quickly. But, and it... It's, it's, it's kind of, I suppose it may be just me getting older, but the world feels like that all the time. Everywhere I go, I'm 
uh, harassed, inundated with noise, people selling me something, doing something. Um, and it's like, oh, give me peace. I want peace. Um, and that's what triggered Cohen to finally find, um, or at least he thinks he's found the solution by being able to work at home. Um, but it is about the world of overload because we have so much information dumped on us all the time. And it's fascinating. It's interesting. I, I mean, I've now become a complete victim of my computer because once I get on the web, there's a million things to explore. You can go endlessly through things. There's that data. And, and, and it's, it's easier than actually having to do the work that I have to do on any, any single day. And it makes me crazy. So I, I, I was obsessed about trying to do a film where a guy escapes from all of that and tries to get on with trying to find out who he is, who he is and what his life is, what meaning his life has. But things like that scene on the street, that's in, that's in Bucharest. And we just put up blue panels where we were going to put in our ads. And then literally I, I, I dragged in a few friends um, to do the ads. We did it in one day in a, against a green screen. Um, built, and then we stuck them in later. It's very, it's very simple. Um, what's interesting is the streets, the traffic. Uh, Renault makes these little cars called Twizzies. And they very generously gave us 15 to use in, in the film. But it wasn't enough to fill up the street. So in the studio, I, I saw golf carts zipping around the place. I said, I'll have those. And we then put panels on them and turned them into taxis. Everything was created out of what we could find. Um, we did find the one uh, at the end of this uh, London bus turns up. There was one London bus in Bucharest. And all these things. But it's... It looks very busy, but we shot all of that in one morning, what you saw there, um, because we didn't have it time to. We had to be at another location after lunch. <laughs> That's impressive. Uh, the character, Christoph Waltz's character uh, throughout the entire movie, he's, he's, he's really searching. He's trying to find uh, whether he's waiting for a call or whether or not he can fig out, figure out mathematically uh, the reason for all of this, uh, for existence itself. And uh, you, you've been making, making films, uh, you know, you, you've had a, a very long and storied artistic career. I'm curious what it is that you're still searching for as, as someone who makes things. Money. <laughs> Simple as that. Give me the money, I'll make a film. <laughs> it's 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 kind of like that. No, I don't. I don't know if I'm searching for anything. I just uh, I just react in a very infantile way to things that intrigue me, and then I want to make a film about it. <laughs> it's real simple. I see. I want to put it in my mouth or in, into a camera. One of the two. Uh, it's it's uh, at the moment. Uh, I'm not sure what I want to do, but but I think what was interesting for the character is there's, there's a line in there that. I think I actually wrote the line, I don't think, where he says, I was alone but never lonely. And that's the key to the whole movie. Can we disconnect? Or do you just want to spend the rest of your life being a neuron, or maybe just one end of a neuron, an axion or a ganglia, that you only exist because you connect to other people and you can keep in touch all the time? Uh, in France, I was saying, um, if Descartes was alive now, it would be, uh, je tweet, donc uh, je suis. I tweet, therefore I am. And, and, and it's a thing that worries me, how, how who we are if we disconnect. Uh, are, are people too frightened to disconnect? Uh, because we're both connected and more alienated than ever before in a strange way, because we can all stay in our own little world. Uh, ultimately, the film is about 
humanity coming back into his life, but it's also about a damaged man who can't accept. Uh, it's about impotence as well. I mean, we all think we're in touch with everything. We know so much, but what can we actually do to change things? That's the big question now. Um, all of that's in the film. <laughs> <laughs> and some more. Some really good gags. <laughs> there are some good gags in it. Uh, years ago, there was a documentary that I think is great. You might think it's uh, horrifying to watch uh, called Las, Las La Mancha uh, that talks all about the, the so-called Terry Gilliam curse. Uh, there have been so many times that, uh, that you've... you've almost had a project together and then something fell through, something happened, and I'm curious how this has affected each new project, knowing that, uh, that sometimes that, that, that gloom cloud uh, sh- it appears over you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting weary, I think is the word. I mean, it was when you were younger and you fought for everything all the time, it was fine, and now it's like, oh God, it's gonna go bad. It's just gonna go bad again. So I'm believing in nothing now. I mean, I'll take whatever comes along. Anybody got any ideas or cash? I'm your guy. <laughs> no, it's, it's funny because I think, uh, on one hand, life is still quite wonderful, but the business of making films gets harder and harder. And I think what's particularly bothersome at the moment is how do you compete? How does a film like this, even though we've got this terrific cast, how does it compete with um, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, which has, first of all, hundreds of millions of dollars spent on it, and then probably 80 million just on marketing it. And, and, and so I think smaller films are really struggling now. Uh, and maybe that's why you see them on video on demand, because they can, you, can, you can reach the public without having to spend large amounts of money. But there's so much of a choice now. How do you get people's attention is what worries me. Um, so I don't have any solutions anymore. I just know, like, uh, on this film, I just go out and flog it everywhere I can. And hopefully there's enough people, the world word spreads, and there's enough people who like it. And that's all you can do now. Um, and I think we've just narrowed everything down except for, thank God, cable. 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 Good stuff on cable. I've, I've just... I finally watched Breaking Bad the end of last year, and I'm completely, I think it's a brilliant piece of work. And I just uh, finished, two days ago, the Danish version of The Killing, the original, which is phenomenal. Uh, And this is maybe the future, because you can do long-term, long pieces, the writing is excellent, you can say all the things that people don't seem to be able to say in, in, in film, and you reach a huge audience. It's just on a smaller screen. That's... No, should I mention? I would, I would only make the argument, though, that uh, while I, I really enjoy all... Th- this is absolutely a, a renaissance for, for television, and this long-form storytelling is great, but the one thing that I miss from a lot of these shows are cinematic pleasures. They don't necessarily have mise-en-scene. They don't, they don't do the same thing, and you know, sometimes they have multiple directors, but you can't feel the, you can't feel the auteur in them. No, they're, they're corporate in that sense, yes. <laughs> I think the auteur is... I mean, I'm not a, I keep saying I'm not an auteur, I'm a filter. Uh, because when you make a film, the amount of the ideas in there that are from a lot of different people in the course of making it, you assemble, it's a team. I mean, I, being the filter, is I'm the guy that decides what goes in and what doesn't go in. Uh, I'm semi-permeable. I'm not completely. Everything doesn't go in. But it's... It involves a lot of people, and that's, for me, the joy of making films, is you assemble 
all these various people with very different talents and skills, uh, and and you work together and you make something, uh, and, and I, that's what I what I really like. And I mean, of course, I like being in the position to be the guy who decides what goes in, and what doesn't, and and they've got to fit within the world I'm kind of envisaging, but each of them makes that world bigger and richer than it would be if it was just me doing it myself. And on that note, uh, I guess we'll look at another clip. Oh, latex. <laughs> latex. For those of you who are keen on latex, this is for you. Surprise. Bang. I waited. You never called. You poor thing. Jobby's right. You need me. You're Mr. Joby's friend? Well, Joby doesn't have any friends. I feel so, so holy. Going to the chapel of love. We prefer <laughs> not to be touched. The rent must be outrageous. Actually, we own the building. We bought it from an insurance company. Some years ago, there'd been extensive fire damage. The previous occupants were an order of Gnostic monks who've sworn vows of chastity, poverty, and silence. Apparently, no one broke the silence to yell fire. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, uh, you know, some people speak in the third person. He speaks as if there's more than one of him at any given time. I, I, that's, we, I mean, Christoph actually was having trouble with that idea. That's the way Pat had written in the script, and he thought it was a gimmick. But then, as any serious actor does, he found a Viennese uh, psychiatrist who explained to him that people who live alone at a certain point do start talking about themselves in the third person. Uh, and so he was relieved and he did it beautifully. Uh, I love, I, you notice the new brow bra that we're selling in this film here. For men who've got not enough hair there, we, they can wear the brow bra. Uh, <laughs> Which is strange enough, that eye pat, the eye covering is what he uses to sleep with, which is, for those who uh, have seen La Jeté, it's, it's basically stolen from that. <laughs> and on that note, I think it's time for you all to ask questions. Hi. Um, over here. Where? Right here. Ah, way over there. <laughs> um, I remember on the uh, documentary for the uh, battle, uh, battle for Brazil, you talked about how you originally had an image of a guy on a beach listening to the song Brazil, and that ultimately didn't end up in the film. But I was wondering when you start new creative projects, you start with one idea and then it just naturally evolves into something else. Do you stick with like something that keeps you on course or do you just let it flow into whatever it turns into? No, I usually have a, a very definite idea of what I'm trying to do, but I don't want to just stay on the straight path to get there. I find as you wander, you start shooting, it's kind of like you get lost in the woods, and there's really interesting things along the way. And so I meander a bit and have the ability in the editing room then to pull it back to where I intended, but it always the film is always changed in the course of making it, and yet I suppose in the end it's saying, what I intended to say as an overall thing. I, 
and I'll fight for the, the basic essence of anything. I, I don't mind compromising and changing this, that, and the other thing that are more around the edges, but the essence is crucial that that doesn't alter. Um, and that's all. I, I just, you know, the, the, the journey, I hate that word, but it's, you know, the, the wandering through the woods of, of the filmmaking process is just interesting because you discover things, but you've got to be clear what it is you're trying to say. Um, this one I found out after I finished it, what I was trying to say. <laughs> Your animation. I love, what's the name? Giriamation. Yes, thank yeah, you. Yeah, I love the, you know, yeah, good, good, yeah, that's exactly. So, actually, how did you create it? Because it looks like, like a paper cut, you know, then uh, removed like this. How did you do that? Because I love, you know, I love Monty Python and the Flying Circle. Yeah. Because I love, you know, animation. That's why, I, you know, I love. Thank you so much. It's a miracle uh. I'm talking to you. Thank you so much. <laughs> 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 the, the animation was just... The only way I could do what we had to do and the time I had to do and, and uh, time to do it and the lack of money was cutting things out. So I would, books, photographs, whatever, I would find things that, I, I, here's how it worked. I would always have an idea, I'd draw a little storyboard and then I'd start hunting for the actual things I was gonna use in it. And, and again, that would change as I was doing it. The, 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 other, the other trick was, I was having at least one all night or a week, maybe two sometimes. So it would, like three o'clock in the morning, the pieces of paper would arrange themselves for me. I didn't do any of it. It was just, they would, and I'd, I would look around and say, oh, that felt, with that, oh, that's really interesting. Let's do that. So it was, it was the limitations again made it interesting. If I had, if I had been, had the money and the skills to do it like a proper Disney cartoon where everything's drawn perfectly, it wouldn't have the kind of vitality and the, the surrealness in many cases, because I just find, oh, there's an old World War I photograph. That's, oh, turn that, we'll make those guys do something. It was, I had also the, the, the restrictions of coming from one, the end of one sketch and get to the beginning of the other. So I'd have these various ideas, oh, I could plug that in there, but the fact I had restrictions made it interesting. Without restrictions, I go everywhere. So. I live in a world where, you know, less money, less time, all those things seem to produce more interesting results than if I had the freedom to do what I want. Uh, so don't tell the financiers that, but <laughs> <laughs> there's always a balance. There's a balance between what you're trying to do and what it should cost and whether you can do it for less because something like yeah, Brothers Grimm is going to cost a lot of money. You have to build a village. You have to do all these things. It's going to cost more, but we still ended up doing it for less than others might have done it. Um, it, it depends. This one, because 80% of the, the movie uh, takes place in this one, this church, we were able to build a church and, um, and make it interesting enough that it would be interesting for somebody you know, trapped in one room, effectively, through the whole thing. Um, but it's, I don't know, I, I, one day I'm gonna learn how to make films properly, but, un <laughs> but until then, I have to make do with what they give me. <laughs> what kind of drove you to be an artist, and especially in this medium of film and television? I mean, you performed and now you direct. What kind of drove you to begin this journey, walk in the woods, as you put it? It starts by showing off when you're a kid and enjoying it. 
<laughs> Once you realize you can entertain people, you want more of it. It feels good. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I kind of backed into most of the things I've done uh, because from the beginning, I always wanted to have complete control over what I did. That's, that's the criteria that limits my career. Um, and it, you know, I always drew cartoons as a kid because you get an immediate response. Uh, it's not like writing a novel and then people are reading it and saying how good it was. You can draw a little something funny and they like it. So it's, it's easy. And then I moved from, from that and I stumbled into animation. Uh, and that was another way of doing things. And Python came along and then Python was successful. And I got to put my name up on the screen saying co-directed Holy Grail. So I was a film director. So I tried that for a while, see how that goes. And I'm still working on that one. <laughs> but it's, no, I do things that... I, either I've got something I really want to say or something that really inspires or excites me that I want to share. It's that, and then I want to be the one that makes the mistakes, not some studio executive making the mistakes. So that's the key, and, uh, and you end up, I suppose, being, quote, an artist because you're pig-headed and you're convinced that your version of things is better than somebody else's version of things, or at least, because I don't want things to be committee made in committee, even though Python was a committee. We each did our own thing within that and agreed to agree. Um, it's just, I think it's also the only thing that keeps life interesting is when you have the satisfaction of doing what you want to do and, and making some other people enjoy it. If you're doing something that, if you're doing it for the money, that's not ultimately gonna be satisfying. You do it for your own selfish, pleasure and satisfaction. <laughs> thanks, thanks. Ah, there it is. The light is really... <laughs> Hello. Hi. Uh, well, first of all, I want to say I'm so excited to see this film. Since I heard you were making it, I've been excited. I'm finally seeing it on Monday, so thank Lower you. your expectations <laughs> is all I say. <laughs> well, I was just wondering, what are some actors that you like currently? If there was someone you were to work with, who would you want to work with, and who do you, whose work do you enjoy? It's, it's kind of strange. I don't think like that. I, and there's a lot of wonderful actors out there. I mean, um, but it's always whatever the project is. Who's the right person for the part? That's the way I think. I don't dream of saying, oh, one day I'll be able to work with Leo DiCaprio. I don't think like that. Uh, if the part, if he's the right guy for the part, then I'll pursue that. It's always like that. I, I, I'm always keen to find another project that Jeff Bridges and I can do together. Yeah, I mean, he's great. Uh, Jonathan Price. I mean, I've worked with too many good actors. I think that's the one thing that's most important when I'm starting a film is I've got to find people that I really admire, that I think are right for the part, and, and we'll have a good time working together. And uh, in the course of all that, I just keep learning. It's, it's, it's great to work with good actors because they're teaching you new things all the time. Um, but other than that, uh, I don't know. Who, who's, who's good out there these days? <laughs> Um, who? Who? Oh, Fassbender. We keep talking. We keep talking. Yeah. No, Fassbender's fantastic. Yeah. Right. Uh, I'm wondering, with a great actor like Waltz, and with certainly Williams even much more so, did he uh, improvise at all? Did you encourage that? A lot of great actors can bring, you know, sudden surprises to it. No, Chris, Christoph doesn't really improvise. I mean... The script is the script. He will then argue 
how one should approach this, that, the other thing, or maybe do this, but it, not in the same where Robin uh, just loved improvising. He just wanted to. In fact, it, it was the whole point in Fisher King was to haul him back down so he stayed on script um, because. Uh, just because I wanted to stay close to the script, but with Fisher King, there would be, you know, you could feel it in a certain um, scene that after a couple of takes, Robin wants to really do this other stuff. So I said, like, go for it, do it. And then you'd learn a few things along the way in that, uh, on that take. Then I said, come on, let's go back to the script, but add those bits in there. And that's how it works. Um, um, I mean, if, in Munchausen, the King of the Moon, Ray DiTuto, um, that Robin plays, is a huge amount of Im improv in that. He's just firing. But, uh, but it starts from the script. You've got to have that reasonably solid. And then if an actor can color it with you know, a few bits and pieces around the edge, it's fantastic. And, and, and if, if the scene is going well, often an actor will just improvise because he's into the scene. He won't even be thinking about it. He'll just add something to it. And that's great. Hi, uh, it's a great honor to hear you speak, and I'm actually here on behalf of one of my friends in California who's studying film, and he sent me with this question. Besides the ending, are there any differences between the Love Conquers All version of Brazil and the good version? Um, yeah, I think basically the Love Conquers All, I think they removed all the fantasy sequences, didn't they? Uh, it's been a long time since I looked at it. I can't even remember if I watched the whole thing. I was so impressed with it. Uh, I felt I didn't want to feel bad about my versions. <laughs> uh, no, uh, no, they, they basically wanted to remove all the fantasy elements in it and make it a happy ending. Um, and that was it. And, uh, and I said, no. And I guess you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> Especially, you don't want to then take an ad out in Variety <laughs> that draws attention to this. <laughs> but... Uh, and so you end up with a reputation in Hollywood of being difficult, but fuck up, who cares? <laughs> um, hi, I great admirer of your work. I was just wondering, who do you admire as a director that's working contemporary? Like, do you like Christopher Nolan, for example? Because I look at Christopher Nolan's work and I see a lot of echoes of your work mm. where he's a very fantastical, where, you know, he's not limited by... by the yeah. imagination is, is the only limit in a sense. And there aren't that many directors out there who seem to go that far out. No, I think, I think Chris is very, he's very smart. And he's, I think there's so many directors out there that are technically hundreds of percent better than I am. That's what I find extraordinary now. We're living in a time where incredible directorial skills on a technical level are there. But what I miss is individual voices and I find that harder and harder that's what movies were about for me uh, a voice that ah that's unique that's saying something that nobody else is saying and I think now we're living in a time with brilliant technical work but they seem to be coming out of a, a more corporate uh, um, thought process I don't feel the individual anymore the Coens are pretty close to the real thing um, uh, Hanukkah, I think, is extraordinary. Uh, most of the directors that intrigue me are, are probably foreign because they're not having to work within the, the system that uh, limits, uh, I suppose, their imagination. I, just, I saw uh, Wes Anderson's um, Budapest Hotel. That's sweet. It's wonderful. I mean, 
he's one that's unique, I think, and it's, it's special stuff. I think the, hard, the bigger the budget, the harder it is to maintain a real individuality is the reality. It's just the way it works. Uh, hi. I, I love all your work from the uh, Monty Python and, and all the animation, innovative collage stuff that you did to all of your films and everything since. Uh, I was wondering if you ever think about returning to like a fully animated or if you ever think about doing stuff like on the low budget end where you can just directly convey those things and uh, just control, control every aspect of your vision however you'd like. Well, I think eight and a half million dollars for Zero Theorem is as low budget as I want to go. <laughs> and, I, and animation, uh, no, I don't really want to go back to that. Uh, I mean, there are moments when I get very frustrated and think, oh, God, I could do it that way. It would be really quick and cheap. And I got complete control. But I don't. I'm sort of on this, this, this endless uh, quest to do things up there. I have to say something about this film because some of you might be a bit more technically oriented. Um, this is the first ever one-size-fits-all full-gate semi-vinyl motion picture. And I know you want to know what that means, don't you? You're all just begging for that, yeah. And here it goes. <laughs> we shot it uh, not 185 to 1 or 1235 to 1, the normal um, proportions of film. We shot at 16 by 9, is what your iPhone, your iPad, your, your digital television home at 16 by 9. Um, and we've shot it like that. When you see the film, you'll, you might notice there's black on the two sides a little bit because it's not covering the full screen. You'll also notice that the corners are rounded because it's full gate. And nobody's shot a film like this since silent movies because the, the gate in the camera is a little square and, and when, they, when they make it, the corners have a little roundness to them rather than square. We, and within that area, normally when you make film, there is a safety area so you don't get dust and hairs in the gate and all that crap that comes along. Well, we show the entire gate. That's why you'll see the rounded edges. Silent movies have that, the same thing. And it's semi-vinyl because we shot on film. Film is like vinyl. It's analog. Um, but there's 260 effect shots, digital effect shots. So I couldn't lie and say it's fully vinyl. And, of course, it is a motion picture. Um, so everybody will actually see the exact same image, no matter what format they look at it, on their iPhone or on the big screen. There won't be any cropping. There won't be panning and scanning. And so I've been hoist by my own petard since it's come out on video on demand first. And so people are seeing it in a format that I don't want them to see it. And, and this, this, this happened because, uh, because an aspect ratio on a previous film was, was messed up, right? And didn't, wasn't this a reaction to... Uh... No, no, I just, just did it 16 by 9. I think I, think I was just uh, not thinking clearly when somebody asked me, what, what, what ratio do you want to work? I said 16 by 9 will do. And then only realized later that that is not what we normally shoot in. Uh, and, and then just, I, most of the things I do, I justify after the event. Uh, <laughs> Anyway. All right, well, on that note, uh, no time for any more questions, but thank you so much for coming out. And once again, Terry Gilliam. <laughs> <laughs>